Well, welcome back to another episode of Pain Reframed. We are exceptionally honored today to have Dr. Anna Lemke, who is the Chief of Addiction Medicine and Assistant Professor at Stanford University School of Medicine. This is Pain Reframed. I got to admit, I first heard Dr. Lemke on NPR on Fresh Air with Terry Gross, and it was one of those pull the car over moments where finally there's a voice out there that's really speaking truth to power. And she recently published the book, Drug Dealer MD, how doctors were duped, patients got hooked, and why it's so hard to stop. It is a clarion call to each of us that are in healthcare and really points out the systematic problem that's currently going on that affects each and every one of us, but also our society as a whole, huge, huge problems. And it is really with great honor that we, we've got Dr. Lemke joining us today. And if you wouldn't mind just giving us a little bit of a background to how you got to where you are today, and especially your voice that is really uh, one that needs to be heard. Well, I chose psychiatry coming out of medical school because I was really interested in having relationships with my patients through time and in enhancing not just the quantity of life, but also the quality of life. But I was trained in a time when there was a big emphasis on pharmacotherapy and relatively less emphasis on non-pill interventions. And what I discovered over the course of my early career is I was seeing more and more people presenting with substance use disorders of all types, drugs legal and illegal, people misusing and getting addicted to drugs prescribed by their doctors. What really motivated me to write the book was um, on some level horror at what I was seeing was the harm inflicted on patients unwittingly. Uh, by doctors through uh, the medical interventions that they were providing. Well, I must say, when I heard you on Fresh Air, it was like I, I stopped and pulled the car over moments to, you know, have your voice being out there. And I, I often say, you know, when I, I talk that I think sometimes we've, we've lost our ability to be outraged at the right things. We'll be outraged by a slight on Facebook or a Twitter feed, and yet the things that are staring us right in the face that the carnage right in the face, we're not talking about. I agree with you. It seems like we're trapped in this echo chamber of being outraged about petty political infighting. We're not looking at the horrible things that are happening right before our eyes. It's almost like it's too overwhelming to see that. So we focus on these smaller details that are irrelevant. I'd really like you to read a paragraph out of your book. I just think it speaks so much to how big the problem is, but also how it's, we like to point fingers, but it's bigger than one one thing that's had us. It's really a systematic system problem. So if you wouldn't mind reading out of your book on page 120, that paragraph really spoke to me about really what's happening, where it's supposed to happen, where really communication between one healthcare provider and a patient. Sure, I'm happy to read that. No longer are doctors and patients alone in the exam room. They are accompanied by a host of invisible partners with demands that may have little to do with treating illness. Patient relations stands gazing into the mirror, a patient satisfaction survey on a clipboard in her hand. Billing is standing on the scale, the numbers on display never far from his mind. Disability claims sits with one leg in a cast propped up on the empty chair, 
The Joint Commission is digging through a file cabinet, a magnifying glass in hand. Private insurance is occupying the chair intended for the patient, distracted and encumbered by a stack of prior authorization forms. The Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, morbidly obese, is leaning precariously on the edge of the exam table. Big Pharma hides in the corner just out of sight, confidently spinning a drug company pen. The state medical board is hovering behind the doctor, looking stern and unyielding. And two lawyers, the hospital's legal counsel and the patient's lawyer, are facing off, fists raised, ready to do battle. Time personified is there, ticking steadily, reminding the doctor that time is short and other patients are waiting. Anna, that is, first of all, so awesomely written, but also so unfortunately accurate. I guess one thing I'd love you to, to speak on or comment on is, you know, we're physical therapists, Tim and I, and so, you know, we all have sort of our individual lens. And I think sometimes as we've learned more about sort of how to, how to try to manage pain and, and, and maybe be able to, to manage the pain experience, um, in, in a healthier fashion than the road that we've went down. I'll admit that that our our field and professionals within it oftentimes get frustrated with doctors. Get, I don't want to say mad at doctors, but get frustrated that that they continue to prescribe opioids, that they that they use words that harm, you know. And we get picky and, and frustrated when, in reality, I think that not only that paragraph, but another part of your book that I thought was fantastic spoke to how really this got perpetuated was even those that were providing the continuing education for physicians were really leading them down that route. And so I think a lot of times we need to remember that physicians are, are they are very much so well-meaning in, in damn near every case. And there are so many other variables at play, all the players you just mentioned in the room, as well as other ways that they were educated on where they couldn't even trust how reliable that information was. Can you speak a bit to that side of the problem? Sure. I mean, the title of my book, Drug Dealer MD, is a accusatory and, in fact, misleading, because although it suggests I blame doctors for the current opiate epidemic, really I have a great deal of empathy for healthcare providers who are trapped in this system gone awry, um, most of whom are people who went into the healing profession to help other people and now find themselves um, trapped uh, in a kind of this massive bureaucracy which has confused getting patients better uh, with uh, making money. Um, so, so it is, I think, important to acknowledge that on some level we're all caught up in a system that doesn't allow us to fulfill our goals as as healers and the the reason that we all we all went into this in the first place and it's you know as you say you you, you find yourself as a physical therapist get it getting angry at at doctors you know that's I think that's very poignant because. Um, instead of working together as a team, we all feel that we're sort of working um, working at cross purposes. I know I have that experience as well um, with other physicians, even though I myself am a physician. And yet I know at heart, you know, the physicians that I feel are not practicing the way that I wish they would practice are not bad people. They're, they're just misguided on a, on a very significant level. And as you brought up, um, a big part of that is the way that the pharmaceutical industry has essentially co-opted medical evidence. Yeah, it is so refreshing you say that. I mean, again, we've been sold this bill of goods. Um, we see a lot in your book, spoke largely on the pharmaceutical industry, but it, it it permeates the device manufacturing industry, and which many of these people, you know, had devices planted in their spine, and you know, and now go on to a life of opioid medication and chronic pain, uh, but often started with 
an initial pathway that was assembly line, if you will, and not really realizing that we medicalize very, what used to be normal aches and pains, we now have medicalized them in society, especially I was alarmed. And as your book stated about, you know, just youth and how people that have sports injuries now I've seen being placed on medications they never should have been placed on. Yeah, sometimes I get this horrible feeling that patients are part of some kind of grand experiment where the medical community is trying out technologies on unsuspecting victims, really, because like you, I see um, relatively young people who went to see a doctor because of low back pain and then five surgeries later and who knows how many pounds of metal inside of them are now really, you know, in a position where they never will be able to be out of pain. And that is so tragic to see that. And it's it's really horrifying. It's like some kind of, you know, nightmare kind of science fiction dystopia. You know, how did that happen? You know, how did we how did we come to a place where where, you know, we were sticking rods and and metal cages, you know, inside this 25 year old? It's just, you know, insanity by money you know, by a system that has, you know, really been hijacked by uh, corporate interest and this desire, you know, to apply this expensive technology and some amount of hubris on the part of the physicians who do that work, um, you know, who are not willing to look at the limitations of, of modern medicine in terms of our ability to fix what's broken. And I think you hit the nail on the head when you say fix what's broken. We've, we've uh, really, we will not pay for the things that take time, communication, and connection. The things that have been shown to to work, like cognitive behavioral things and chronic back pain, I mean, they outperform, you know, these other things, but yet you, you fight in, with the middleman to get two visits or three visits to try to work with these people when you know it's it requires compassion and trust development because frankly they don't trust the system anymore because they've been passed around so much and in order to even develop trust with that patient in order to move forward with some very difficult conversations takes time and of course we're not going to pay for that. I agree with you that a big part of this problem is the fact that the healthcare system does not incentivize providers to provide you know, non-pill and non-procedure alternatives, talking to a patient, educating a patient, doing physical therapy, doing massage, doing acupuncture. I think the fact that that we don't pay for those kinds of interventions means that our patients aren't going to get those kinds of interventions. But I will also say, I think on a cultural level, what's also contributing to this problem is the expectation culturally that people can not take care of their bodies and can even do dangerous things that will mess up their bodies. And that's okay because they'll go in and see a doctor and they'll get some kind of bionic miracle, you know, replacement part. And I think that's a big problem too. So for example, you know, I I have young kids and they watch these memes and these YouTube videos and there's these young kids doing really scary, dangerous things, whether they're on a skateboard or whatever it is. And I look at that and all I see is 20 years later, a back injury. And it's amazing to me. It's it's such an incredible kind of an overweening pride, a misunderstanding of the limits, not just of modern medicine, but also the limits of the human body. You know, I say to my kids, you know, this is the body that you're the only body that you're going to have for your whole life. You need to take care of it. 
And that I think has really, really been lost. We're not, we're not good stewards of our bodies. Mm. And we think that if it breaks, we'll just go in and see a doctor and they'll fix it. And that's so not true. And we really have to educate the public about the fact that that's not true. I love that because we hear that from our patients all the time, you know, and it gets in this mentality of, you know, we oftentimes hear, well, when the hip gets bad enough, I'll get it replaced. You know, these are, these are very common, you know, thought processes. And while that might be the, the way it's going to go, go forward, that idea of when I start experiencing pain or when I do this, an intervention will fix me as opposed to I'll work to manage it, right? I'll, I'll work to normalize discomfort and, and, I'll, and I'll work to create a healthy relationship with that. Instead, it's always when this happens, we'll fix it. You know, it's very much this interventionist mindset. And I think that goes on and on and on. Yes, without any comprehension of the risks involved in those those kinds of interventions, that's really where you know the average consumer of healthcare is incredibly naive. They do not appreciate the frequency and the severity with which even a hip replacement can go terribly wrong. Um, and that's, I think, we, we really need a huge uh, kind of a public health campaign around that. Yeah. And, and you mentioned, you know, in, in a book you brilliantly wrote, you know, one of those risks is the addiction, right? I mean, I mean for the wrong, right. the wrong person at the wrong time with the wrong genetics and the wrong environment in neighborhood, as you speak of, you know, you, you get that, that pill, you know, it might, it might feel right at the time, but it can send you down a whirlwind of significant issues. That's exactly right. And you can have no history of addiction yourself and no history of addiction in your family and yet become addicted when taking these medications under a doctor's care for a legitimate medical condition. And are we getting better at recognizing who is susceptible so that physicians could be educated on who might be those high risk people that it would be really dangerous to, I mean, I, I realize it's multifactorial, so maybe that's an impossible question I'm asking, but are we getting any better at all from almost like a, a clinical prediction rule or guideline standpoint of knowing, Hey, that particular individual, that would be really risky to give them opioids because they might be at higher risk of developing addiction. We do have the data to become better at that. But we don't necessarily access it. So by that, I mean, we do know that individuals who have either a personal history or a family history of addiction are more likely to become addicted to opioids in the course of routine medical care. We know that people with co-occurring mental illness are more likely to become addicted. We know that people with early childhood trauma are more likely to become addicted. But unfortunately, although we have that information at our fingertips you know, in real time, I don't see that being used properly. Uh, what tends to be more the driver is whether or not the particular doctor that that individual is seeing feels that they have the ability to remedy w whatever ails that person and whether or not, you know, the insurance companies are going to handsomely reward them for trying. You know, and I'd like to step back again, if you wouldn't mind on that, that thought came to mind and it just... I try to have a low information diet with TV because, but when I do watch it and you see things like you have a drug now for OIC, a new disease, opioid induced constipation, a disease we in medicine have created. We created this disease and therefore we've got you for life and now we'll, we'll sell you another piece of the pie. And I guess my question is, you know, how do we counteract these messages that are really designed with powerful understanding of cognitive neuroscience? The marketers are excellent. They know how to sell stuff and they do it exceptionally well. And how 
do we come about as, I guess, as, as colleagues and part of this new tribe, I hope, to beat that back? And, and, and just would be curious of your thoughts. Well, what I say to patients is that the sheer number of different drugs you're on puts you at risk for all kinds of complications, so that it's very important to be on as few drugs as possible. And if you're at a point where you're taking new drugs to counteract the side effects of other drugs, that's an important moment to pause and reevaluate whether the drug that has the side effects is something that is really still benefiting you more than it's harming you. And these are discussions that are essential to have with patients and they take a lot of time. In the case of opioids, it's particularly challenging to have these discussions because of the rewarding nature on a biochemical level in the brain beyond the pain-reducing nature of the opioid drug itself. People really do lose the ability to judge the benefit of these drugs over time because they're so caught up, again, on a biochemical level with the reinforcing effects of the drugs. So it takes extra time and also a kind of a, a tough love to say to patients, you know, I know that you feel that this opioid is really helping your pain, and I do believe that, you know, right after you take it, you feel better. But probably what's happening is that you're ending up medicating withdrawal from the last dose rather than medicating any kind of underlying pain. And now that you are you have constipation and you have memory problems and you're sedated and lying in bed all day binging on Netflix and not getting anything done, I think it's fair to say that this medication is really not helping you. Um, and we need to consider, you know, coming off of it. And again, these are really tough discussions. People who are on opioids long term are often absolutely terrified to uh, experience withdrawal or come off. And that's not because they're uh, somehow weaklings. It's because opioid withdrawal for some individuals is probably the most painful thing you could imagine. I've had patients say to me, I would rather die than go through opioid withdrawal. And I think it's true for them. And it's so interesting, some of the things you're saying there. You know, when we really go back to our roots is, you know, come from kind of this rehabilitation perspective and mindset and really was part of medicine where we really said, you know, sometimes we have to go through tough times to go further, right? You know, after whether it be, you know, a life-threatening injury or post-operative things, you know, it was going to be a tough road to, quote, rehab back forward. But once we entered this idea that pain became somehow a disease in and of itself, all of a sudden, we the the rules kind of changed and i would argue it changed even in our profession where we began to be less aggressively pushing patients than than we used to be at least in my 30 some years i saw that we that we we started to get seduced into into this uh, language as well Yes. So one of the interesting complaints I've had from patients in the last half decade or so about physical therapy is that it is too gentle, that it doesn't seem to get anything done. I've wondered about you know that, and I've thought to myself, and I'm curious what you think, I'm wondering if physical therapists are concerned about medical legal consequences if the patient says, you know, you've injured me further by the physical therapy that you've given to me to the point where physical therapy now is such a watered down version of what it was meant to be that there's, uh, you know, has less of a healing than it did previously. Your thoughts? 
I'll definitely jump on that. I, I agree that that is, I, as I teach, I often say, you know, it's called physical therapy for a reason. And if you are not tired at the end of the day providing it, then you probably aren't providing enough of it. And that we really have gone that way. First of all, I agree with you that that's coming. I think probably potentially medical legal. I think there was this movement to towards, again, more passive elements of, you know, they're in pain, nurturing, trying not to push folks through difficulty. I think it's complex, but you've, you've got my wheels turning. I'd be curious, Jeff, what your thoughts are on that. We, we've all gotten too caught up in pain. Everyone wants it gone and all the way gone, and they don't want to go through more of it um, to get to the other side of the bridge. So I, I do think that there is sometimes where we're all just caught up in that stream of trying to avoid pain at all costs. And the, and the problem with that is sometimes things do have to get worse before they get better. And, you know, you have to push through a bit to make it to the other side. So I would say on one hand that, and on the other hand, the interesting thought that brings up is, you know, there, there, there's an overutilization concern when you're too caught up with pain. You know, you, you take the 55-year-old gentleman who's got some diffuse right you know, shoulder pain of, of 1 to 2 out of 10 um, after an episode of heavy lifting, and we keep treating this person trying to get rid of that 1 or 2 out of 10, when in reality, there's probably a time to step back and say, you know, 55 years old after an hour of activity, you know, 1 out of 10 diffuse shoulder pain um, is probably what we should call normal, and we should probably wrap this up, you know what I mean? So I think there's some times where we, we keep chasing this perfect state when in the reality is maybe we should be getting our heads together and working on getting more comfortable with what is normal. Right, everybody wants to be 25 again. One of the interesting things I found in researching my book was that, you know, 150 years ago, within the medical profession, doctors believed that pain was salutary, meaning that they thought there was healing benefit to experiencing pain. They argued that pain boosted the immune system, that it boosted the cardiovascular function, and then that certainly on a spiritual level, too, they believed that, uh, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. That is something that today we have uh, virtually abandoned in favor of a different uh, narrative altogether, which says that not only is pain painful, but pain is dangerous. And that if I experience physical or mental pain, then I become vulnerable to some sort of future pain or chronic pain syndrome. The classic example of that in the psychiatric field is the post-traumatic stress disorder, this idea that any kind of trauma can set you up for future trauma that any kind of trigger then can remind you of your original trauma and set off a cascade of uh, new psychiatric symptoms. And then also in terms of physical pain, that any kind of acute injury can lead to a sort of a chronic pain syndrome or what's now being called a centralized pain syndrome. Whatever uh, you know, one may think about the neurobiology behind dr- what may be driving that, I think it cannot be underestimated the extent to which sociocultural narratives are driving that and that we've all become so incredibly fearful of pain. I mean, as a result, they're in more pain. I mean, that's that's the great irony. Yeah. And one of the things in, we're involved with and actually the sponsor of this podcast, is it really is the International Spine and Pain Institute. Really, their whole mission is really teaching health care providers how to teach people about pain, how to demedicalize it, how to understand that pain hurt is not harm that this is these things are normal signals that you they often are misinterpreted 
But that takes time. It takes time and trust with your provider to teach people about pain. And really one of our hopes is that we can really get more and more providers to understand you have to be good and comfortable teaching people about pain and that, again, not medicalizing uh, discomfort. And again, that's not to, we should be preventing suffering, but in our attempts to treat pain, we have created carnage and suffering. And that I think is what we have to accept. Yeah. One of the things I find fascinating about uh, healthcare in the last 30 or so years is that we've trained our patients to continually dial into their pain, whether it's their emotional pain or their physical pain. We ask them to focus on it. We ask them to reflect on it. We ask them to score it on a scale from one to 10. And of course, the great paradox here is that for people who have chronic pain, they have to learn to do the exact opposite. They have to learn how to distract their mind or how to float through the pain in a way that doesn't elaborate on and emphasize it. I tell my patients, you know, every time you kind of turn inward and focus on how much pain you're in, you're actually increasing blood flow, flow to the very neural circuits that you want to diminish. Instead, you need to find ways to detour your blood flow to other parts of your brain that aren't consumed and obsessed with how much pain you're feeling in the moment. That's so well said. And I think, Anna, I think one thing we can all agree on is that especially like you said, with chronic pain, when it's been going on for long periods of time, more opioids is not the answer, right? I mean, I mean, in fact, long-term um, opioid-induced hyperalgesia is a very real problem, you know? So, so continuing to go the opioid route is not going to get the job done. And so, Anna, I guess what I'd love to have you speak on, just considering your area of expertise, um, which is clearly many, but one of them being this addiction situation, when you do have those tough conversations, so let's say you have the patient and you have the conversation you spoke of earlier where you say, look, the overall, you know, risk benefit here is not, is not rewarding continuing this medication. This is doing more harm to you than it is good. And let's say that patient buys in and, and wants to, and wants to get off the drugs. What do we need to do better or, or what systems need to get in place that we can have more success in individuals who do want to make the change that they can have a successful recovery without having those severe relapses, those, those severe periods of discomfort? You know, what, what needs to change or what needs to get in place to, to, to help us bat a higher percentage there? So first of all, I think it's important to distinguish between those individuals who have become physically dependent on opioids and those individuals who are addicted to opioids. And those are different things. Anybody who takes an opioid regularly for a sustained period of time, ranging between a week and three months, will become physically dependent on opioids, meaning that if we decrease the dose or, or stop taking it altogether, we will experience uh, opioid withdrawal uh, signs and symptoms. This is not the same thing as addiction. Although someone who's addicted will likely be physically dependent, addiction is a more complex biopsychological behavioral issue that involves out-of-control use, compulsive thinking about obtaining the drug, engaging in deviant behavior to get the drug, and intense consequences, whether job-related or relationship-related, as a result of the drug use, and yet those severe consequences still not being enough to change the behavior. That, that's really the most salient aspect of addiction. When I'm dealing with patients who 
are wanting to come off of opioids for whatever reason and are struggling to do so, I, I really like to clarify for them the distinction between dependence and addiction. And then I like to say to them, you know, right now it's hard to tell possibly whether you've become addicted or whether you're just dependent. You know, we, we may find out in the process of tapering you down whether or not addiction is something that, that you're struggling with. Because some people who are um, struggling to come off of opioids, it's because they, in fact, have developed, you know, a severe psychological uh, addiction. But I also say before we embark on that journey, I reassure people by saying, you know, there's good treatment for opioid addiction. So if it turns out you have become addicted, first of all, you're not alone. There are millions of people in this country who have become addicted to opioids in the course of routine clinical care. And secondly, there's treatment for opioid addiction. So don't be afraid to let us know if that's a problem. Beyond that, the biggest mistake I see in terms of opioid tapers, because my, my practice now consists almost at least half of my practice consists of what I call a de-prescribing practice, just working with people to get off of benzos, opioids, stimulants. The biggest mistake that people make on the outpatient side is trying to taper too quickly. So if you take somebody who's had, you know, a, an intrathecal opioid pump for two decades and you try to uh, get them off in, you know, four weeks, you are not going to succeed, even if they do not have addiction. Um, you need to go much more slowly. On average, uh, my patients take a year to two years to taper off of chronic opioid therapy. There's so many nuggets in there. I, I really appreciate you elucidating the difference between dependence and addiction very clearly. And I hope our listeners grab onto that. And the second thing is that slow taper, which is so frustrating in the world we live in, which is working with a lot of folks with persistent chronic pain, that I often say that, you know, this has been a multi-year history. You know, there is not magic that's going to occur in this one session. We have to commit to some ongoing behavioral changes, and it's going to take time. And it, you're going to go through these periods of good days and these periods of bad days. And you, we have to commit and write down to get on the roller coaster together to, to go there, but always realizing that the, the downward trend is in to decrease pain, but ultimately improvement into increased life and in doing the things that you enjoy again. The, the challenge we see with many of these third-party intermediaries now, where you have someone that's been dependent for a long period of time or long-term persistent pain that's been seen every one under the sun, typically has screws and bolts in the back and other things going on. And supposedly you're supposed to fix this in six notes, you know, so six visits, you know, and the third-party intermediary says, no, that's all you get, even though they've actually paid a healthcare premium that says you could actually access physical therapy, for instance, for 20 times. But no, we're not going to give it to you because that's uh, we actually make money by denying care. Yeah. Do you have that in your world? Oh, yeah. And it's so enraging and so sad to see what, you know, what insurance companies will pay for without any resistance. For example, these um, Herculean surgeries that leave people worse off than when they started or opioid analgesics without any, any kind of uh, pushback or prior authorization. But when you want to do the kind of care that will really help people get better, which requires a lot of time and patience, uh, you can't get paid for it. It's, it's really awful. It's really important to tell the chronic pain patient 
that as they're getting off of opioids, their pain will be worse because that's part of opioid withdrawal. We call it uh, withdrawal-mediated pain, full-body pain, but that the pain that they experience during withdrawal is not the pain they're going to be left with when they get off of opioids. It's, it's part of the withdrawal process, but we can be very hopeful that when they're on a lower dose or on off or off of opioids altogether, their pain will actually uh, begin to improve. Very, very fascinating. And I'd just like to maybe have you close with any kind of your thoughts on maybe hopeful thoughts on where we can go forward as a, a community. I'm going to use this health care community because we really have a sick care system now. But are you hopeful that there you're seeing some I guess, uh, voices in the wilderness that might might be willing to try to make a change. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that's been so gratifying about, you know, writing my book and having people read it is is the kind of positive reaction I'm getting from healthcare providers, young and old, for whom it's it's really resonates and it's very cathartic. I, I think we're all truly wanting to be healers and would, you know, love to you know, change the system so that we can realize our identity as as healers. And I think by raising up our voices and, and, and really demanding that the system change so that we can do what, you know, what we went into this, this profession to do, uh, to help people so that we can really, really make that happen. So I, I am optimistic. I, I, I do think that uh, you know, so many people in healthcare are are really wonderful uh, people who have sacrificed a great deal to help others, and and I think we can change the system to make that possible. And I think we can educate our patient consumers better to help them realize the risks in engaging in in certain kinds of healthcare treatments, and the benefits on some level um, of not going to see healthcare providers, but instead using uh, alternative pathways. Uh, to let the body heal itself. I love that you say that we have to demand it. And, and I really love the, the term we. And I appreciate you coming on the show because the more the more multidisciplinary this voice gets of demand, of recognizing the problem and saying, you know, this is this is what needs to change and this needs to change soon. Um, you know, the, the more effective we're going to be in, in seeing that system change. As we really close, do you mind kind of giving the giving the listeners a little bit of info on kind of where they can follow up with, with, with content that you're putting out there? I mean, we've heard you on, on NPR. We've read your book. Do you mind kind of letting them know where they can absorb some of that? Do you have a website or on social media or, or anywhere else you could direct them to kind of find out more information about you and all the great work you've done? Oh, well, thank you for the opportunity. I must admit that one of my own mental health care self-care strategies is to not actually go on social media. <laughs> I love it. Love it. In fact, I, I don't even own a smartphone, if you can believe it. Although Stanford set up at drug dealer MD Twitter thing, I, I don't know how to use it. And I'm, I'm deeply <laughs> terrified of learning. I will say one resource that I think might be helpful through Stanford, we're making some free online courses um, about the prescription drug epidemic. We've made that one already. There's a website that anybody can go to. You don't have to be a healthcare provider. And then we're just finishing up one that I hope to be out in June on how to taper patients um, off of chronic opioid therapy, which outlines some of the things that we've talked about today. We, I also published with colleagues in American Family Physician, which is a medical journal, a widely read primary care journal, an article on the risk benefits and alternatives of chronic opioid therapy, including language about how to talk to patients about those risks. I'm happy to send you 
a copy of that that you could put on your website if you like. But that's sort of, you know, there's my book and then there's some educational things I've done through Stanford. And then there's the many articles I've written for medical publications. And beyond that, there's not much else because I'm, I'm sort of um, trying to preserve my sanity, <laughs> which is, <laughs> which is hanging by a thread. If you want to know the truth. And I, I we're, we're honored that you took the time to come on the show and uh, we will be putting out that information on show notes. And I just want to thank you for, being in the good fight, I, I just feel sometimes we need to band together that sometimes these voices that used to be in the wilderness hopefully are coming out. And it's a hopeful message that you said that I think it resonates uh, with so many people. And thank you. Thank you. Uh, and, and you have a most awesome week. Well, thank you. And you too. And thank you for the good work you're doing by getting the message out. Wow, what an incredible conversation with Dr. Lemke. I mean, how neat to hear someone with her level of expertise and just someone who has really remained true to her vision of, like she said, being a healer. And I think one thing I pull from that conversation, I hope you all do, is that that really is what most healthcare providers want to be. And I think a lot of the anger that we have towards individual providers is really misguided. It's really a, a broken system, right? It, it, it's more a broken broken system than it is a broken provider. And I think a voice like Dr. Lemke's with her expertise and her passion in this area is exactly what we need to honestly move this thing forward. So let's heed her advice. And, and as, a, as a group of healthcare providers, as a group of patients, let, let's be that call to action. Let's demand change. And, and let's really go out there and say, hey, here's what we need to be getting paid for, reimbursed for. And here's where the model needs to go for us to fix this issue. So, I mean, just huge thanks to Dr. Lemke. Everybody, please, if you get a chance to read that book. I've actually went through it a second time. I cannot recommend it enough. If you're curious about the opioid epidemic, you're, you're curious about the challenges that we face, there really is not a better voice out there than Dr. Lemke. So please track her, apparently not on social media, but please do track her work, do, do track her publications because she is a true breath of fresh air and a needed one at this time in this place. So thank you so much. Please keep track of us as well. ISPinstitute.com. EIM blog as well. You can track the uh, podcast there. Stay engaged. Keep talking. Let's make some change. Pain Reframed is brought to you by our sponsor, the International Spine and Pain Institute. Check out their transformative pain science programming at ispinstitute.com.